Uh, I want to begin this morning by asking you to think about what led to your salvation. So think about what led to your salvation. Maybe there was an individual person who led you to Jesus Christ. But for most of us, I would guess that there were many people involved. It wasn't just one person that led you to Christ, and, and there were many people involved in that work. For most of us, if we think about the, the human agents involved in our salvation, we would have to admit that there was a whole church involved. For, for example, as I've been kind of talking to you over the last number of months, many of you have shared how you came to saving faith, and for many of you, it was just by being in a particular local church. And so if you were saved in a local church over some period of time, then think about all the people involved in making sure that that church was there. All the people involved in the ministries of that church and the, all the aspects of that church and all of those people who supported and served that local church played a role in what would ultimately lead to your salvation. Now, I want you to think about these people this morning because they played the role that Jesus talks about in our text in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. And we're actually, we're in the gospel of Matthew this morning. And we're at Matthew 5 and verse 9. And Jesus says there, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These peacemakers are people involved in making peace. Now that term, peacemaker, is a very general word, and we wonder what kind of peace are these people making? The Bible speaks about two kinds of peace. There's a a peace with God, what some people would call a a vertical peace, peace with God, and then there's a, a horizontal peace, peace with other people, peace between individuals. We can maybe say there's a a third kind of peace, an internal peace, but where we're talking about peacemaking, we would have peace with God and peace with others. A, A peacemaker is someone who is involved in making peace between two hostile parties, between two hostile people or two hostile groups. It could be between God and man, or it could be between man and man. A peacemaker reconciles those two hostile groups and brings them together, brings them to unity, brings them to peace. Now, Jesus pronounces a blessing on this peacemaker. The one who is a peacemaker is in a blessed position. They're in a highly favored position. We could say they're in a a divinely favored position. Now to understand this verse rightly, we need to remember the context here. Now there's eight blessings that go together in verses 3 to 10 of Matthew chapter 5. And let's just go ahead and read Matthew 5. We'll start at verse 1. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice again that verse 3 and verse 10 end the same way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those verses together show that these blessings describe the one to whom the kingdom belongs. If yours is the kingdom of heaven, it means that you will enter that kingdom when it is established. In other words, these blessings describe a Christian, a true believer, somebody who is born again, somebody who is a a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. And each of these eight character traits describe believers. If you have these character traits, you are blessed. But if you don't have these character traits, you aren't a Christian. If you don't have, even if you're missing one of these character traits, we would say you are not a Christian. Because Christians, according to Jesus Christ, are poor in spirit. They are those who realize that they have nothing to offer to God in the spiritual realm. They are dependent on God and Christ because they see that they have nothing to offer. And Christians mourn. And remember, what do they mourn? We looked at this. They mourn over their poverty of spirit. They mourn their sin. They see their sin and they grieve the offense to God. They see sin in themselves and they see sin in the world. And they mourn both. Christians are also meek. And we saw that that meant that they are those who rely on God. They submit to God. They obey God. They don't resist the Lord. They don't fight the Lord. They submit and obey. That's a picture of a true Christian. Next, Christians are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're not as righteous in their day-to-day lives as they would like to be. They, they feel a lack of righteousness in their lives and they hunger for it. They would be, they would like to be like Jesus Christ. And we see from this that that Jesus isn't demanding perfection here. A Christian desires perfect holiness but comes short of it in this life. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. Fifth, a Christian is merciful. A Christian is merciful. And we saw that in verse 7, that what makes us merciful is that we have experienced God's mercy. Nothing makes us willing to forgive others like the realization that God in Christ has forgiven our sins. We had an unpayable debt which Christ paid in our place and we remember that when someone sins against us, we remember that and we are merciful and we forgive others. A Christian also, according to Jesus, is pure in heart. And we saw last time that we were together that that this means they have a single-hearted focus on God. A Christian has a single-hearted focus on God. They want to live for God. They want to serve God. They want to live their lives as a kind of worship service for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, we see that we are peacemakers. And in verse 10, we have the final beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. 
Now, you might notice a kind of progression from verse 3 to verse 10. It's not the kind of progression where you leave one behind and go on to another, though. It's not as though we become merciful and now we're no longer poor in spirit, but there's kind of an escalation happening here. From this place of of brokenness and mourning, a person begins to rely on the Lord. They're now meek, and they desire righteousness, and then they, they act out in mercy towards others, and they have this desire to see God that consumes them. They have a pure heart. And then they begin to be instruments in God's hands, as we're going to see, to bring peace to other people. And finally, they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. They begin to be instruments and and bringing peace to others, and then they are persecuted for their stand for righteousness. And so you can kind of see this escalation happening here. Now, I I wouldn't want to say that these are, are stages of Christian maturity or anything like that, but Jesus seems to start at the bottom with the poor in spirit and work his way up to somebody who endures persecution because of their devotion to righteousness. Now, I'm just kind of pointing out some observations here, some some things about the context to help us understand what this peacemaker is all about. The the person described in all of these verses, verses 3 to 10, are blessed. And what that meant, again, was that they were in an enviable position. They have a, a deep sense of happiness in their hearts. And the reason that they're blessed is not necessarily because of what they're experiencing now in this life. They're blessed because something future awaits them. They're blessed because their present state means that they're going to share in future glory. The kingdom belongs to them now, but they won't inherit that kingdom until Christ returns, verses 3 and 10. They mourn now, but they will be comforted then in verse 4. They are meek now and they wait on God to work in this wicked world. But a day is coming when the whole earth will be their inheritance. Verse 5. In verse 6, we see that in the future they will be satisfied with righteousness. Now they hunger and thirst for it. In verse 7, they are merciful now. And although we realize that a Christian has already received mercy, there's a sense in which we await the final bestowal of God's mercy when he either sends us into heaven or he sends us into hell. And so verse 7 says, they shall receive mercy. The pure in heart will one day see God. And the peacemakers shall be called the sons of God. There's a coming day when those who were peacemakers in this age will be called sons of God. God himself will acknowledge them as his sons. And the futurity of these blessings really shines through in verse 10. Because who would say that being persecuted is a blessing in itself? Persecution is a blessing, not in itself, but persecution is a blessing because it shows that those who are persecuted will one day receive a reward in heaven. Look at verse 11. Jesus kind of expands on the last beatitude in verse 11, and he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
And so if you are presently in these states, if you are presently in all of these states, you are blessed because your eternity is going to be absolutely amazing. You are a Christian. Now what we've studied in this section is that the future blessing in all of these cases helps us understand the present state that goes with it. And so verse 3, we want to kind of read as a whole, verse 4 as a whole, and we see what, it, what they each mean. They each kind of qualify one another. And so the first state and the last state, their blessing is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those two are really easy enough to understand on their own. They have uh, a future blessing associated with them, and it's the same blessing. They will inherit the kingdom. But the rest of these beatitudes are further explained by the future reward that follows. And we see that especially in verse 5, where to, to understand what it meant to be meek, we went back to Psalm 37, which says that the meek shall inherit the earth. And that really helped us to understand what it meant to be meek. Also in verse 8, when we wanted to know what it meant to be pure in heart, we saw that it was connected to seeing God. To be pure in heart means that your spiritual eyes are open to see the glory of God, which causes you to devote yourself to him and to leave the lesser things behind. And that same interpretive principle applies to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There's going to be a close connection between what it is to be a son of God and what it is to be a peacemaker. And so what is a son of God? A son of God is someone who has been adopted into God's family through salvation. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a son of God. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so God sent his son to redeem us that we might receive adoption as sons. And so a son of God is another way to talk about a saved person. Uh, And another way to talk about a saved person is to say that they have peace with God. Somebody who's a Christian is one who has peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A peacemaker then is somebody who brings other people into a saving relationship with God. They work to bring others into peace with God. Now, another way to kind of think about how do we understand a peacemaker is if we could look at the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the Son of God. And how did the Son of God serve as a peacemaker? Well, he made peace between holy God and sinful man. And he also made peace between men and other men by joining us together in his body, the church. And so these two pieces really end up together. Because when we are right with God, we become agents of reconciliation in the lives of others. And so first, we seek as peacemakers to bring others into a right relationship with God. And then we work to bring that same level of peace that we have with God to bring it to the horizontal level so that we have peace with one another. 
And so the peacemaker is someone who has peace with God and works to bring others into that same blessing. And that's the first and most important part of what peacemaking means, is bringing others into a right right relationship with God. A peacemaker is a son of God who serves God to bring others into a relationship with God. And from there, I think, again, it's safe to say that the peacemaker also works to bring peace on the horizontal level to other people. Now, today and probably a little bit even more next week, I just want to focus on the first and most important half, what it means to have peace with God. And without this part, without peace with God, we can't do the other part. And so I know in your outline this morning, it actually says that there's three headings that we're going to consider. If you have one of those outlines, we're actually only going to cover the first two this morning. And so I want you to consider, first of all, the necessity of peace. The necessity of peace. And we're talking about peace with God. And so let me ask you a question. Why do we need peace? Just think about that for a minute. Why do we need peace? Why does mankind need peacemakers who bring a message of peace? Now, those who us, of us who have been saved probably know the answer. And we, we can't really put it in better words than those of Isaiah 48, 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Or Isaiah 57, 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. And if we turn that negative statement into a positive statement, it would be something like this. There is hostility between God and the wicked. Or there is enmity between God and the wicked. There is strife between God and the wicked. And here's the thing that many people don't realize. Everybody is in the category of the wicked. Listen to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Actually, I want you to turn there. This, this might be a very familiar passage to you, but it's a very important one. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, very early in the book of Genesis, after the fall of man into sin, and we see the corruption on the earth as men just continue to live wicked lives on the earth as they multiply And verse 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, the Bible teaches that man is born into this world at enmity with God. Now, enmity is a state or a feeling of active opposition or hostility. A state or feeling of active opposition or hostility. Now, when we think about Genesis 6-5 and we think about this enmity that we're born into this world with, I think a lot of people, maybe even yourselves, somebody here would, would say, and they would object to this idea that they were at enmity with God. 
Have you ever kind of tried to tell somebody that the Bible says you're at enmity with God and they kind of like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm just totally fine with God. There's no opposition between me and God. I, I got no problem with God, right? You ever kind of had a conversation like that? I think a lot of people would object to this idea that they are wicked. But here's the thing, and I, I want to try to prove this to you. If you object and you say, I'm not wicked or I'm not at enmity with God, it actually reveals the very opposite because God says in his word, the Bible, that you are. God says in the Bible that you are born into this world at enmity with God. And to disagree with the Bible and what the Bible teaches about man is to disagree with God. And if you disagree with God on something so fundamental as who you are, then think about it. You're in opposition to God. In Romans chapter 3, and actually I'd like you to turn there and, and see this a little further with me. Romans chapter 3, Paul summarizes what God says about man in the Old Testament scriptures. And most of Romans three ten to 16 is uh, a quotation, word for word, from different verses of the Old Testament. And, and this is what God says about man. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now in that text, note the repetition of these all-inclusive words. There is none, no one, all, together. Then it says, not even one. Also note there the pervasiveness of sin. Sin affects the totality of man. It affects our minds. It affects our understanding in verse 11. It affects our direction. All have turned aside. The idea is that they have turned aside from the way that God has set forth. It affects our value. Together they have become worthless. There, there's, there's no value in sinful man before God. It affects every aspect of our bodies. It affects the throat, the tongue, the, the lips. Verse 14, the mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It affects the feet. It affects our hands. Sin affects our entire being because sin is in our hearts. And because it's in our hearts, it affects every aspect of our lives. And so Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, Jeremiah says by the Spirit of God, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand the sinfulness of men's hearts? 
Well, look at what verse 10 says right after that, the very next verse. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So who can understand the heart? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so God, the Lord, knows our hearts. And that is not a a comforting thought, not if you are outside of Jesus Christ. Because God knows our hearts and he will judge the evil of our hearts. And we've already seen that the verdict is, there is none righteous. And if we aren't righteous, what does that make us in God's eyes? Think about that. If we're not righteous, what would that make us in God's eyes? That would make us wicked. And need I remind us as we look at these verses that God does not exaggerate. God knows our hearts and he knows that we are not righteous. But let me press our need for peace a little further. We're talking about the necessity of peace. And I'm trying to show you that apart from salvation in Christ, we are hostile to God and therefore we are without peace. Now let me just give you, as I try to help you with that, a a definition of conflict. I think a good definition of conflict. Conflict is when uh, or is a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. A difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. So conflict involves a difference in opinions, purposes, goals, or desires. Now think about the difference between God's opinions, goals, desires, purposes, and those goals, desires, purposes, and opinions of unsaved man. Just let me just give you a couple. Let's think about what is God's purpose. What is God's purpose? We would say God's purpose is to glorify himself. Is that unsaved man's purpose? God's desire for man is for man to repent and believe. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is, he commands all people everywhere to turn away from their sins. And we ask, is that all people's everywhere's desire? Not by any means. And so can you see how this works? Can you see from this how man is actually in conflict with God, even though he's not aware of it, even though he doesn't acknowledge it? Man's opinions, purposes, desires, and goals are exactly opposite to God's purposes, opinions, desires, and goals. And so man doesn't need to be consciously thinking about being hostile to God. Man is hostile to God by just ignoring God and doing his or her own thing, doing whatever is in his or her own heart. And whenever you think differently than God on an issue, or you have a goal that God doesn't approve of, or if you desire something outside of God's revealed will in his word, then you are in opposition to God, whether you know it or not. And in that thing, or I should probably say in those things, you are acting wickedly. And the Lord says to you, there is no peace for the wicked. You are in conflict with God. And the only remedy for this conflict between you and God is salvation through Jesus Christ. The only remedy is by believing or trusting in Christ alone. 
relying on yourself or on your so-called good works or on your religious duties or on anything else besides the person of Jesus Christ is just further hostility towards God. Now, I want everyone to listen to this. and, And kids, I want you to listen up here. God commands you to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. He commands you to come to him through Jesus Christ and not to come to him is rebellion against God. And if you don't come to him for the forgiveness of your sins, you will go to hell. And your conflict with God will end with you losing because nobody is going to win in conflict with God because God is ultimately going to be victorious. And unless you come to him through Jesus Christ, you will end up facing his penalty in hell. And so we need peace with God because apart from Christ, we have no peace with God. Now, the second thing I want you to consider then, and we really need to know this, is number two, the way of peace. What is the way of peace? And the good news here is although we come into this world in hostility against God and we come into this world in conflict with God, there is a way that we can have peace with God and we can be reconciled with God and the hostility can be removed and we can be right with God. Our sins can be forgiven and we can be accepted and enter into heaven and joy forever with God. And to see this, I I want you to turn, as we look at the way of peace, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look a little bit at Romans chapter 3 and chapter 5. Romans 5, starting at verse 1, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so there is a way to have peace with God, even though we were once wicked and not righteous, and we were worthy of God's wrath. And that way, according to verse 1, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace means the removal of hostility and the presence of harmony. And so we can have a relationship with the holy God of the universe. The conflict can be removed and reconciliation can be ours if this one thing is true of us, if it, as it says in verse 1, if we have been justified by faith. If we have been justified by faith, then we have peace with God. Now, what does it mean to have been justified by faith? And I want to ask you, could you explain it to somebody else who desperately needs that peace? Like if this moment I called you up here and said, you know what, sermon's over for me. I'm just going to have you come up here and explain what it means to be justified by faith. Could you explain it to somebody such that they could get saved so that they could understand what it means? Could you explain it to a friend or a coworker or a family member? Could you explain it to somebody who desperately needs peace with God? And this is so important because we really need to be able to do this. If we're going to see, as, as we look at next week, if we're going to be peacemakers, we need to understand, be able to explain the way of peace to others. 
So to do that, I just, I'm going to do it for you here. I'm not going to call anyone up here today, uh, thankfully. But uh, go ahead and turn back just to Romans chapter 3. I want, I want you to see this with your eyes. What does it mean to be justified by faith? Now we'll start with what it doesn't mean in verse 20 of chapter 3. It says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There's that word justification. And here's how we don't get it. Justification is not by works of the law. You can't earn peace with God by works. The law, God's righteous requirements, should just show you how much of a sinner you are. If you're trying to earn peace with God through your works, what it should really show you is just how far you fall short of achieving anything by the law. All it should do is show you how much of a sinner you are. And so the law or works is not the way to justification. And so what's the answer? Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So verse 20 says justification is not by works. Then verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, justification is about righteousness. And what we need to be at peace with God is righteousness. And you can't achieve that righteousness by the law because you are a sinner. Now, remember verse 9 of chapter 3, that there is none righteous. And so what is this righteousness of God all about? If, there, if none of us are righteous and we can't earn righteousness, how is this righteousness of God now manifested? Well, the good news of verse 21 is that the righteousness we need has now been revealed. It's been manifested. It's been shown. And it has been manifest, it says there, apart from the law. In other words, we don't get this righteousness by the works of the law. And then it says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And what Paul's saying there is that the righteousness that Paul is talking about is spoken of in the Old Testament. So it's not by our works through the, what the Old Testament law is, but it's, it's, um, it's explained in the Old Testament. This is not some new thing that Paul's teaching. This, is, this was there in the Old Testament in the law and the prophets. Now Paul says in verse 22 what righteousness he is talking about, and he calls it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is the righteousness that has been manifested, the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God is for all who believe. That is, it is applied to all who believe on Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is counted as belonging to those who believe. This righteousness of God is, is not our righteousness. It is Jesus' righteousness. Jesus earned it on our behalf, and God gives it to those who have faith. God gives it through faith. And then verse 22 ends, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile. This is God's way of peace. 
And now Paul explains how the righteousness of God is given to all who believe. Look at verse 23 there. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Now we often use this verse to say that all people have sinned. And it's true. All people have sinned. We saw that in verse 9. None is righteous. But this verse in context is talking about believers. All believers have sinned and fall short of God's holy standard. All believers have sinned. And if all believers have sinned, how much more have all unbelievers sinned since unbelief is a sin? And so all believers have sinned and they fall short of God's holy standard. Verse 23 again, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so here's how this works. God put Christ forward as a propitiation, as a a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath against our sin. God was angry about our sin. God put Christ forward to pay the penalty for that sin on our behalf. And now because of that propitiation, because of that redemption, that purchase price that that Christ made for us, because of that, God can now justify us. He can declare us righteous by grace as a gift through faith. And so God declares us righteous based on what Christ has earned. And through this faith, we are united to Jesus Christ so that what belonged to him, which is righteousness, becomes ours. And what belonged to us that is, our sin became his. Now, Martin Luther used to illustrate this really well with the picture of a marriage. And I think this is a helpful illustration. And the picture that he used was of a, a poor bride with a massive debt. And so just picture a, a lady. She's about to get married, but she has a massive debt. But she marries a rich king. And when she marries this rich king, her debt becomes his and his riches now become hers. And through their union, she now becomes rich. And that's a great picture of our justification because through our union with Christ, all that he is becomes ours. And now God treats me as though I had lived the perfect life of Jesus Christ, his beloved son. And God has already treated Christ and and had him pay the penalty for the debt of sin that I owed. And this is God's way of peace. That's what it means to be justified by faith. It means to be justified, to be declared righteous by God through what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And we do that simply by faith. Now again, go back to chapter 5 and let's look at verse really 6 to 10 again. Paul says there, therefore, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then jump down to verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now we've seen the necessity of peace. And now, just now, the, we've seen the way to peace. And the way for you to enter into that peace is by believing on Jesus Christ through faith. Safe faith, saving faith means to look away from yourself and look to Christ. It means that you entrust your soul to him. We could even say that, that you marry Jesus Christ, that you join yourself to him in love, and you become his, and he becomes yours. And this faith unites you to him so that your sins are forgiven and his righteousness is counted as yours. And also when this happens, and this is really important, this faith will, you, will unite you to Christ such that your purposes and goals and opinions and desires will change, such that you now want to live your life for him as an act of worship. And this isn't going to happen perfectly, but there's a fundamental change in us when we truly trust in Jesus Christ and are joined to him. And what I mean is that you will change so that you will be what we've been seeing in these Beatitudes, that you will become poor in spirit and you will mourn over sin and you will become meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness and all of these things that we've been studying in the Beatitudes. And if you've experienced this saving grace, guess what else happens? You will become someone who works to bring others into peace with God. You will become a peacemaker, a, a messenger of peace. Now we're going to cover this more next time because we don't have enough time, but we're going to come back to this. But for today, I just want to encourage you that if you are a Christian, you are a peacemaker, probably more of a peacemaker than you know. I, I think often this is an area that we struggle in. We feel like I don't do evangelism good enough. I don't explain the gospel good enough. I'm not as good of a peacemaker as I would like to be. And we'll talk about how you can be next week. But just like the other Beatitudes that we've seen, none of us ever feel like we're as good as we would like to be in any of those areas. Does anybody mourn over their sin as much as they'd like or hunger and thirst for righteousness as much as they think? Or is anybody as pure in heart as they would like to be? No. And you might not be as good of a peacemaker that you would like to be. But let me just show you this really quick. You are a peacemaker if you are a Christian. And here's how I can prove it to you. If you are a Christian, this much will be true of you. You desire to see other people get saved, don't you? You get excited when you hear about somebody coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And if this place could be flooded full of unbelievers who are returning from their sin and, and finding Jesus Christ, there'd be nothing that make you happier except for your relationship with God. And so now you rejoice to hear how God works in the salvation of sinners. And, and you serve the Lord, don't you? According to your giftings. And, and you do what you can because you want the Lord to work through you and through your life and to, to glorify him with your gifts. And so you are a peacemaker more than you know. But we'll look at that more next time. And so... This really then becomes a, a fitting time for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, really these two things that we've looked at are also true. That we remember the need that we had for peace. 
We remember that before we were saved, we were in hostility with God, that we were in conflict with God. And by wicked works, we were alienated from him, according to Colossians chapter 1. But through the way of peace, through Jesus Christ, we have come to know him, and our sins have been forgiven, and we have been declared righteous in his sight. And so through the gospel, we have been reconciled to God. We've been made right with God. And that's what we remember in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for true believers, for those of you who have repented of your sin and have trusted in Jesus Christ. And if you're a visitor with us this morning, we would invite you to do this together with us. Jesus told us to remember him through this ordinance through this thing called the Lord's Supper. He said on the, the night that he was betrayed, Mark fourteen twenty two says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you that I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so through this we remember not only what Jesus did to pay the penalty for our sins, but we remember that he is coming again and that one day soon he will return and we will drink this, we will do this very thing with him in the kingdom of God. And so let's pray before we partake. Father, we thank you that you have given us a way of peace, that even though we were once hostile to you through your Son, you have reconciled us to yourself, that you might receive the glory in our salvation. And we pray as we remember this salvation that you would help us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the unity that you have given us as a body of Christ and we pray that you would bless our time as we remember this and that we would live according to this gospel and that you would cleanse us of any sin that is in our lives now and, and make us and mold us more into the image of Jesus Christ. We want to be like Christ, the one who made peace with us. And we pray that we would be peacemakers with others for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.